If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Across the 8th and 9th century, Britain and Ireland were targeted by a series of brutal Viking raids. But that wasn't the end of the story. In the 11th century, they were in the firing line once again, as more Viking naval expeditions were launched from Scandinavia. Dr Caitlin Ellis, an early medieval historian at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies, has just written an article on this second Viking age, and David Musgrove caught up with her to find out more. Okay, so, um, Caitlin, welcome to the History Extra podcast. Thank you for joining us. How are you today? Good, thank you for having me. So, uh, you've written a very interesting article for uh, the Journal of Historical Research um, about Scandinavian royal naval expeditions to uh, Britain, Ireland, and uh, its surrounding islands. Um which I very much enjoyed. You sent me a proof copy and I thought it was fascinating, so I thought we should have a chat about it on the on the podcast. So um, let's jump in. What's, what's the period we're talking about here? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so I suppose it's mostly um, the 11th century. I suppose technically it's a bit more 1013 to 1103, just depending on um, when these expeditions that I'm looking at as sort of case studies, when exactly they were. Um, so I suppose that was one of the things I was interested in is that we have this sort of concept of the Viking Age, but maybe there's a bit more attention to like the very beginning of that, to the early period. So I guess traditionally we would date the start of that, especially in, in England from a sort of Anglo-centric point of view, we'd date it to 793 with the, the famous um, raid on Lindisfarne. Um, and then we do sort of have a little bit of a lull um, in the sort of later 9th and um, in the 10th centuries. But then the, the raids kind of come back and really hit Britain um, and Ireland in the sort of late 10th and 11th centuries. Um, and so, so some scholars have also talked about kind of like two Viking ages of Britain um, because we have this kind of uh, quieter period in raiding. But also, I suppose, because the the two periods arguably are quite different, you know, in terms of the scale of, of raids. Um, so, you know, we're not just talking about quite small sort of hit and run raids. You know, we're, we're definitely definitely talking about bigger fleets and a bigger scale, um, like larger larger numbers of ships and men involved. Um, also, we, we in some ways we have more information, which which is helpful, obviously, as a historian. Um, but, you know, we, we, we actually maybe know who might be leading leading these expeditions. Um, so that's obviously why this article is kind of more focused on, focused on royalty, because... Um, they're probably the people who are able to command the resources to kind of launch a big expedition or even a sort of attempted invasion. Um, That's good. Are you so? Are you uh, are you sort of down with this concept of the first and second Viking ages? Where, where do you stand on that? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it. I think it's sort of helpful to um, yeah to show that it's it's not kind of the same all the way across the period. Um, although I suppose, again, we kind of often, from an English point of view, end, end up kind of dating the end of the Viking Age to 1066, which I think is a little bit um, simplistic of just because we sort of go, oh, well, the Normans are here now, so that's it, that's the end <laughs> um, of the Viking Age. But this was one of the things I was trying to do in that article is to show that, you know, there are still these significant kind of naval expeditions from Scandinavia um, after 1066. And I suppose even if... Um, in retrospect, they don't necessarily have have such a great impact. Um, you know, we we don't get kind of Scandinavians ruling England again, like like we had Canute ruling earlier in the 11th century. Um, so that that doesn't mean that they didn't try. So I thought that they didn't have the ambition um, to kind of uh, do what Canute had done earlier, or to kind of um, yeah to to sort of forge their own kingdoms um, in Britain and Ireland. So I think it's kind of with, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that. They didn't kind of amount to much, but I think it's still useful to remember that they they maybe did did have those aims in in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we'll come back to Canute a bit, I'm sure, in this conversation. Um, so so don't worry, listeners, if you're if you're not clear on on Canute and his role in things. So so you you've been looking at the, the royal um, royal naval expedition. So what, so we ought to consider what's the relationship between kind of the royal families that existed in what's now Britain and what's now Scandinavia during this period were, were they uh were they sort of thoroughly aligned uh, did they know each other what what, what what was the dynamic yeah no that's a good question i suppose also um you know we kind of think of the the english kingship at this point i guess has been fairly fairly long established with the sort of the west saxon dynasty um you know i guess most famously with, with alfred the great and you know they kind of continued to increase their power um and sort of geographical spread i suppose over 
over England. Um, in Scandinavia, it's kind of a, li- a little bit more complicated. You know, we have people who are called kings or referred to as kings kind of quite early on, but then sometimes we have more than one of them, um, you know, for the same um, modern country that we might be looking at. Um, so so it's kind of a more recent development um, in Scandinavia to have kind of one king of, of Denmark or Norway. I mean, the borders might not quite be the same um, as they are now. And I'm mostly looking at Norway and Denmark um, because we don't really have much evidence of of the Swedes kind of getting involved um, in Britain and Ireland, at least at the sort of royal level. So traditionally, I suppose we think that the Swedes more go east and kind of are concentrated on the Baltic and kind of um, going into Russia, sort of down down the rivers and so on. Um, there probably are individual Swedes who are on some of these expeditions. So we have rune stones um, that say that some of them joined these expeditions as, as sort of individuals. Um, so, yeah, we don't, we don't really have so much evidence for... Um, I suppose we assume that there must have been some kind of diplomatic contact um, between these kind of royal families. Um, I suppose, yeah, more, more what we see perhaps it, it is the conflict kind of brought about by um, by um, yeah, the, the Danish invasion and so on. Um, and we don't really have marriage alliances actually either, whereas I suppose we, we could see that for Normandy. You know, we can see that the English kings, uh, we can see that Ethelred marries Emma of Normandy, who then goes on to marry Canute, but that's... Um, a sort of more unusual circumstance, I suppose, after him having taken over the the kingdom of her, her of her dead husband. But yeah, quite a complicated picture there. Maybe 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 yes. we'll pick up on that again in a, in a minute. <laughs> but we talked about that a, a lot on, in, in the mm. podcast in the in the past, talking about uh, the Norman Conquest and, and the biotapestry and things like that. Um, yeah. W- what about in uh, Ireland and Scotland? What was the nature of of mm-hmm. royal rule there? Mm. Yes, um, so it's quite an interesting picture um, for sort of Scotland particularly. Um, So for for the Northern Isles, for Orkney um, and Shetland, um, we have the Earldom of Orkney, um, who are sort of supposed to be, I guess, kind of notionally under Norwegian control, um, you know, that they're owing loyalty um, to the kings of Norway. So, you know, the sagas tell us that um, one of the kings who sort of reigns from 995 to 1000, um, Olaf Tryggvason of Norway that he he kind of yeah really kind of forces them to sort of swear allegiance to him and so on um, some scholars have argued that that's um, maybe slightly wishful thinking perhaps on, on the Norwegian point of view or, or you know because it's from an Icelandic perspective maybe if we had um, Orcadians actually writing about it they, they might say something a bit different um, so yeah so that's a particularly kind of interesting um, that it's sort of caught perhaps between uh, the Kingdom of Scotland um, and Norway, and, you know, even geographically, I suppose maybe we forget how how close Shetland and Orkney are also to Norway as well. Um, you know, it wouldn't take that long to sail um, from the west coast of Norway um, to Shetland. And so, yeah, we sort of have the emerging kind of kingdom of the Scots. Um, I suppose most famously in the 11th century, we have Macbeth uh, of kind of Shakespeare um, renown. Um, Ireland is also a little bit more, um, a little bit more complicated that it's not as kind of unified um at this point, as as say England, um, we've kind of got different kingdoms. Um, we are sort of starting at this point to get what we might call um, sort of a, a king of Ireland, but that doesn't mean that he's the only king in Ireland. It maybe just means he's the most powerful king or that some of the other kings have kind of accepted that he's sort of top dog, you know, that he's the overlord. Um, and then we also have um, 
sort of hiberno scandinavian or hiberno norse towns um so from previous waves um of viking settlement um so i guess dublin most famously but basically all of the towns in ireland um seem to have arisen from kind of norse settlement or even sort of military um encampments so i suppose that's also another difference um between talking about the very first raids um the very first viking raids and why they happen um and this period as well okay and then lastly just to, to finish up the political picture what about wales wales wasn't uh fixed to england as it as, yeah. it, as it did become in later um centuries but at this point was it mm-hmm. no yeah that's true as well um so yes i guess a, a bit like ireland we're sort of maybe a, a little bit more piecemeal in terms of these um in terms of these separate kingdoms um we maybe have kings who are sort of starting to dominate sort of northern wales versus southern wales um so so gwynedd in, in north north wales is particularly prominent um also sort of maintains a lot of ties um kind of across the irish sea so we do see um, sort of connections and alliances and sort of mercenaries kind of going back and forth um, across the Irish Sea. Um, so I suppose that's also useful just to think about all these kind of maritime connections, not just um, the sort of land-borne ones, as you say, n- not just that that kind of Wales is, is attached to England. <laughs> um, and yeah, I guess it's not until a lot later that it gets kind of... Um, gets invaded and brought into brought into the fold so okay so so that's great thanks you for that it's quite a complicated political sort of situation then with, with lots of um lots of different elements but but certain recognizable elements to the to the political structure that we have today okay so let's go into the these these royal naval expeditions that you're talking about through the 11th century could you sort of um, could, could you run through them just uh, just the basic chronology of mm-hmm. the expeditions that you've identified yeah sure um so so as i said we we get this kind of um resurgence of re- restarting um of raiding particularly on england um in the kind of late 10th and um into the 11th centuries um so because i'm focusing on on people who who were actually kings in in denmark um or norway before they started raiding i start with um sven fortbeard and his son canute um and sven in turn is the son of of harold bluetooth who people might perhaps have heard of um for giving giving his name to the to the um techno- technology um so i think some of the people in scandinavia who kind of came up with bluetooth technology um one of them had been reading a sort of historical fiction novel about the Vikings and was sort of inspired. Um, so the idea being that Harold Bluetooth had kind of started to unite Scandinavia. You know, he was very powerful and that Bluetooth sort of unites different communication protocols, I think it is. Um, so I guess they're kind of got quite a sort of a firm foundation perhaps to then be able to kind of launch an expedition abroad. Um, so I Sven and Canute's expeditions are kind of the most successful um, in that Sven is proclaimed king of England. Um, you know, he, he is able to to successfully um, invade this kind of powerful um, polity. But then he dies quite quickly afterwards. So Canute sort of has to retreat a little bit and then kind of reinvade. So it's a little bit more of a... Um, more of a drawn out conquest, I suppose, if we were comparing it um, to the later Norman conquest. Um, So that's the first one. Um, And then we have a little bit of a lull again, I suppose, perhaps because Canute is is reigning for a few decades and he's quite powerful. So that might be one factor that's kind of keeping everyone else at bay. Um, 
And then um, there's sort of a particularly sort of interesting case, but not one that we have a lot of kind of detailed evidence for in the sources. Um, in 1058, um, all of their kind of insular sources, so all of the sources from Britain and Ireland, um, kind of talk about there being the son of the King of Norway, um, who's just sort of there. <laughs> we don't quite know why. Um, so the son of, of the more famous Howard Hardrada, and he's called Magnus. Um, and he just sort of seems to get involved in kind of more local situations that are maybe already happening. Um, so um, I argue that kind of he maybe was um, initially just travelling to Orkney, but then kind of joined um, joined some fleets. So we have people who are kind of rebelling against Edward the Confessor in England. So this maybe seems a little bit more opportunistic that he just kind of sticks around and um, kind of uh, takes part in, in some existing... Um, uh, events um, and then I guess more famously we obviously have um, his father then a few years later in 1066 um, attempting to invade England but sort of ultimately unsuccessfully um, although you know unarguably I suppose then paving the way for the successful Norman conquest you know that the the English have managed to fight off um, Howard Hardrada um, Howard sort of hard ruler or ha- ha- harsh councils of different ways that we can translate that um, epithet um, and yeah, so the English are obviously able to to fend him off at Stamford Bridge, but then obviously have to march all the way, all the way south to Hastings to meet William the Conqueror, and then that's potentially one of the factors that means you know they're they're, they're tired basically, um, so that they're less successful um, in the battle there. Um, but then um, we also have um, kind of continued Danish attempts maybe after the Norman conquest. So um, so yeah, t- to us maybe the. The, um, you know, we know that William the Conqueror kind of had a fairly long reign and he kind of establishes a whole new kind of dynasty um, over England. Um, but I suppose perhaps at the time they didn't necessarily realise it was going to be so long lasting. You know, similarly, you know, we'd had the Danish invasion that had lasted um, for a little while, but then then had led to sort of um, the, the previous dynasty being restored. So may, maybe from their point of view, something like that could have happened again. It might not have been such a kind of foregone conclusion. Obviously, now we know that William the Conqueror was kind of quite effective at um, really kind of cementing his power and so on. Um, so it does seem like the Danes are still sort of trying to chance their arm a little bit um, or kind of support English rebels against the Norman conquest. But then sometimes by the time the Danes arrive, William the Conqueror has already kind of like quashed the rebellion. <laughs> so they sort of attempt to kind of unite and um, make a stronger um, consolidated force. But by the time their ships get there, they usually just end up kind of burning some stuff and going home. Um and then the last one is um, Magnus Bearlegs, who's excellently named. Um, we don't quite know why why his legs are bare. There's a few different um, stories in the sagas that maybe um, maybe once he gets attacked and he sort of hasn't had time to put his trousers on, um, or maybe he's wearing something. Um, maybe he starts wearing a sort of more uh, Irish or sort of Scottish um, type of dress. So, which I guess nowadays for us is it, it, you, you start to picture him in a kilt or something, but that's probably a bit anachronistic. Um, so he, his expeditions are mostly concentrated um, on the Northern Isles and kind of Scotland and the Irish sea region um, and into Ireland. So he doesn't actually seem to seem to try anything against England um, specifically, but yeah, more focused on, on the earldom of Orkney, which he does sort of, end up bringing under direct control um, rather than just having a kind of looser overlordship. He sort of temporarily is able to put his son in, in charge. So that's quite quite significant maybe in the history of, of the earldom. 
great. Okay, well, that's that's given us the the picture. I'm, just, I'm wondering how do how do we know about these events? What what are the sources that um, mm-hmm. that, that you can pull on for them? Mm, yeah. So um, in terms of sort of sources from Britain and Ireland, we're we're sort of a bit better served that we have um, have all these kind of chronicles and annals. So obviously the the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which um, is perhaps the most well known. Um, and then we also have different different manuscripts or different kind of recensions of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, um, you know, where it's being kind of compiled at different, um, you know, monastic institutions or kind of in different parts of of England. So, so sometimes you can kind of see some kind of regional biases that, you know, one version of the Chronicle might might write about one event at, at kind of great length and clearly thinks it's very significant, whereas maybe another version will just give you a very kind of straightforward, short, like... Yeah, whatever. Um, or you can maybe see that, you know, if there's a dispute, say, between the King of England, between Edward the Confessor and the Godwinsons, um, one version of the Chronicle is sort of more more pro-Godwinson and sort of, you know, they, they've been cruelly done wrong and gone, had to go into exile, whereas the other version is more supportive of the King, um, for example. So it says we still have to be aware of, um, there might be some slight... Um, agendas and things going on is because we maybe tend to think that chronicles and annals are um are quite kind of reliable because they're quite straightforward and they're not so obviously um sort of narrative i suppose we have annals from from ireland as well um and from wales um in both kind of latin um and welsh um scotland is quite poorly served so sometimes things that are happening in scotland might be kind of mentioned by these other annals um and then um from a norse point of view um we have um, the sagas, but then they're a lot later. So the 13th century, whereas, you know, if I'm talking about the 11th century, there's obviously that kind of degree of um, of remove um, that we maybe need to be, take them a bit more with a pinch of salt. Um, I suppose, yeah, there's quite a big debate in sort of Scandinavian history as to how much we should use the sagas, how much we should trust them. Um, I think I end up using them because we don't have much else, so <laughs> it seems like we might as well. Um, sometimes we've got continental sources, of course, that we'll talk about, talk about Scandinavia, sources from Germany and so on. Um, we have a bit of archaeological evidence as well. Things like coinage can obviously tell you um, things about, about kings and sort of how they're, how they're presenting themselves or where they're saying they're king of. Um, so, you know, we have lots and lots of English coinage, which is found in Scandinavia in this period, um, some of it might be the result of trade, but I suppose we're usually assuming um, that it's stuff that they've taken when they're raiding um, or payments that have been made to try and get them to go away. So sort of this kind of um, protection money in a way that's referred to as as gaffel in Old English as tribute. Um, so as later we kind of refer to it as the Danegeld, the sort of the payment. Um, so, yeah, we have all this English coinage, which makes its way to Scandinavia, Um and then we then get the Scandinavian kings themselves kind of copying that coinage, but then putting their name and their title and their face on it um, instead. So that's quite interesting as well about um, that even though they're sort of maybe attacking England, um, that maybe they're also taking some inspiration from it as well, at least sort of ideologically or politically. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think in some ways it is strong and weak at the same time because that's sort of um because it's more unified um you know you could you kind of just have have one king to get rid of whereas actually if you're in somewhere like Ireland or Wales um it probably is a more complicated conquest This episode is brought to you by Indeed 
we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bell one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 123124. Excludes tax must update to rewards. And what about um, ships themselves as sources? Um, I mean, obviously, there's been various there's various reconstructions at fabulous places like Roskilde and, and things like that. Um, do they help inform the picture? Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So actually, yeah, Ros- the Roskilde and um, the Ship Museum there. Um, they have um, the warship, which I think is called Skaldeleve Two, because there's another, there's another Skaldeleve, um, and that one is. Um, has sort of been dendrochronologically dated, you know, t- testing the wood um, to around 1042. Um, and they think the wood was actually um, grown kind of in the area around Dublin. Um, so obviously for, for me, this is sort of such a, a wonderful example um, of these kind of maritime links kind of across the North Atlantic, across kind of Scandinavia and Britain and Ireland. Um, and then it seems like it was repaired a couple of decades later, maybe still in kind of Britain and Ireland. Um, but then at some point it ends up yeah, being, being sunk in, in Roskilde Fjord, um, uh, sunk in Denmark. It sort of seems like it's maybe being used as a as a sort of underwater kind of like naval barrier that you sort of make it a bit more difficult for, for ships to come in and attack you or they kind of need to know um, what course to to set um to get there so there's a few a few other ships there as well and some of them are a bit more um what you might think of sort of merchant ships whereas this one this one is definitely more of a long ship you know it's more um it's not got as much room for cargo and so on it's sort of narrower um and and longer so it's a bit more kind of maneuverable um so yes, I mean obviously the the Viking ship is is such a, a sort of famous uh, sort of classic evocative image. Um, you know, obviously we have it on lots of book covers and so on. Um, so, you know, we do have 
um, the ships that um, are, were found sort of in Norway that are in Oslo, are kept in Oslo now. They're a bit earlier. They're from the ninth century. Um, so, so we do have the the ships kind of all the way through. But I suppose arguably by this point they're they're a little bit more sophisticated and um, might kind of allow them to do a bit more and kind of undertake these slightly longer journeys. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something obviously that the Vikings are known for this kind of naval prowess. <laughs> so sort of highlighted a few different um, expeditions there in your in your summary. Mm-hmm. Um, is it, Can you give us a sense about how big you think these expeditions were? What sort of fleet sizes mm-hmm. are we talking about coming mm-hmm. from Scandinavia to, to Britain? Yeah, um, so we get a few kind of different, uh, different figures um, in the sources. Um, so some of them supposedly have kind of maybe 200, 300 ships. So, so say obviously, obviously a, a much larger scale than, than maybe some of these early raids on, on Lindisfarne where we might just be thinking of a couple of ships. Um, yeah, so sometimes we have um, different sources giving us a slightly different number um, of ships for the same event. Um, so it's difficult to know whether that's just... Um, one of them's wrong and has got has got confused um there have been some arguments that um say when it's the the number of ships for for when Harold Hardrada tries to invade England um that maybe actually he's gained some ships on the way so that might be why there's a a, a difference of, of of opinion um why the numbers are different that he might have set off with a certain number but then maybe he gains you know 20 more or something um in Orkney to sort of bolster his troops um on the way um so yeah, so probably probably fairly significant. Um, some people I think have have tried to kind of calculate um, like how many people would be in each ship, um, and so on. I think it's maybe a, li- a little bit difficult to do. But so so look, you've you've identified um, kind of push and pull factors for for these journeys to try and explain what was going on. Should we should we talk about them for a second? What what, yeah. what are the push factors um, that that was uh, mm-hmm. uh, that were driving these these expeditions? Yeah. Yeah. So I, as you say, try to divide it into sort of push and pull factors. I was also thinking about the, the push factors obviously being a bit more the, the kind of the Scandinavian situation for sort of what are the conditions that they might need, might need at home to, to be able to, to launch these, um, launch these expeditions and particularly um, invasions. As, as we've said, if it, if this is, this is quite a big undertaking that, you know, you would need, you would need support. Um, so, so that, I guess that was one of the factors, um, you know, how, well, how powerful is the king in the first place? um maybe how much support does he have so you know we we know that in um 1085 um confusingly also called Canute but uh, a different Canute to, to the famous um Canute that rules England I um, was so, you know a few generations later um and he becomes a saint as long as you see him referred to as Canute the Holy um so he um we know that he's like planning to, to launch a really big invasion that he's kind of gathering ships um but then there's a rebellion against him so it never ends up happening so i guess that's quite a sort of um explicit kind of dramatic example um of this idea that yeah you you would need kind of the the backing um which is particularly probably of the the sort of the aristocracy the nobility you know the, the next level um under the under the royal dynasty um perhaps also you need to be secure kind of within your own family so also um this canute that um planned the invasion um his brother seems to be very instrumental in this rebellion um and and in getting him killed so obviously that's 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 a bit of a potential problem um when we're thinking about succession and so on um and this was another problem for the the scandinavians is often that they might be 
having a sort of an internal conflict so between Denmark and Norway say um so presumably if you're not if you're not kind of feeling secure enough um in your own position you're probably not going to risk kind of being away and taking a lot of your kind of your fleet and your army um with you um so I think, yeah, we sort of have that initial period. I suppose in my first case studies are kind of Danish rulers. Then it seems to a bit more be from Norway. Um, but then after 1066, as I said, it sort of switches back to the Danes again, um, which I think might is partly probably because Harald Hardrada died. So because he was seems to have been kind of quite a powerful um, ruler and, you know, a very successful um, military general until Stamford Bridge, um, that... Um, I think, yeah, you're probably not going to want to go and try and invade England if you're kind of worried that Norway might invade you while you're away. Um, And then sometimes there seems um, to be tensions with Germany as well. Um, So I suppose, again, you're not, um, if you're kind of aware of of that border, um, particularly for the Danes, obviously, uh, geographically, um, Germany is more of a threat to them. so yeah so I think that was most of the the push factors um which is obviously this this idea of inheritance maybe as well that you know maybe the Danes are trying to um trying to sort of get their inheritance from Canute you know just there's been this hiccup in the middle um from their point of view um and then the pull factors I looked at so yeah thinking then more about the, the sort of the British and Irish context of kind of what draws them essentially um to um to these places um so I suppose wealth is obviously a kind of an obvious one. As, as I said, we have lots of um, lots of kind of English silver, lots of English coinage um, that has made its way to Scandinavia. So that's probably quite appealing um, to them. Um, and then we are potentially, I guess, the, the, if they are actually able to, to take a new kingdom or sort of take um, take power there too. Um, sometimes people have argued that. Um, and the fact that there are these sort of Scandinavian settlements from sort of the earlier period of activity, I guess, might also be a, a draw in a sense, or at least it might make it easier when they are there that maybe those people would support the kind of the new Scandinavians coming in. Um, I think sometimes that's a little bit simplistic. I'm just assuming that they'll definitely sort of have this kind of sense of common feeling, but you know, the 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 people who, even in w- what became known as the Dane law. Um, even if they were originally um, sort of from Scandinavia or, or Denmark, you know, they've now been living in England for kind of several hundred years. So they wouldn't necessarily think of themselves as the same as people who've just come from Denmark. Um, so I mean, we do get some some people from that area kind of supporting Sven and Canute, but I think it's probably more um, more just sort of politically kind of opportunistic and because there's other, other disputes going on. So also... Because uh, yeah, another poor factor would be kind of weakness, um, for example, in England. So we do have um, sort of disagreements, I guess, among scholars now about whether England in the 11th century is actually really strong. And, you know, that's why everyone wants it. <laughs> that's why everyone wants to try and take it because it's really wealthy and it's this great prize. And, you know, it's sort of administratively maybe quite quite sophisticated. Um, but then other people say, oh, you know, but it got conquered twice in the 11th century. So, you know, it can't have been doing that well. And, you know, it must have been really weak. Um, and, you know, we do have sources obviously talking about kind of rebellions against the king and sort of lots of squabbles and so on. Um, and sometimes that might be about the succession issue as well. It was obviously Edward dying, Edward the Confessor dying childless 
in 1066 obviously kind of creates the situation that um, a few people try and exploit, you know, Harold um, and William as well. I think in some ways it is strong and weak at the same time because that sort of, um, because it's more unified, um, you know, you could you kind of just have have one king to get rid of, whereas actually if you're in somewhere like Ireland or Wales, um, it probably is a more complicated conquest. And we do see that later on when the Normans tr- tried to take over both of those places that, you know, you, you can take over one kingdom in Ireland, but then you've still got lots left um, or in Wales. Um, whereas I suppose, you know, if, if Canute um, takes, you know, when he becomes king of England, he kind of does already have all of the, all of the apparatus is sort of already, is already in place that he can just kind of slot in on the top. And he does make some changes and, um, but I suppose he doesn't, he doesn't have to start from scratch. There's already um, a sort of system in place um, that he can use to rule, which is probably quite useful. You just made a really interesting point in in um, in your answer there about sort of nationalistic affiliations or ethnic affiliations, perhaps. Like, well, mm-hmm. you, you know, we think of it today. We think, well, if someone's from Denmark, they're naturally going to support the Danes. If someone's from Norway, then mm-hmm. then ditto. And someone's from England, the same. That mm-hmm. that doesn't apply then uh, in the 11th century. You know, I think people didn't have that same sense of affiliation to a to an identity. Or, or, or how how did it how did how does it um, play out? I mean, you know, I think they probably did did have senses of identity, and um, even if it's not so much national identity, or you know, maybe maybe even their sort of like linguistic identity um, might have been more helpful. So there's also kind of religious identity, although obviously by this point, um, and again, I realise in the sort of the popular perception of Vikings is probably a sort of pagan, you know, <laughs> godless heathens who are attacking churches and so on. Um, but certainly by this point, you know, they're 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 basically Christians um, themselves and have been. Um, have been for a little while, some of them. Um, so, but yeah, I, th- I, th- I, th- I think often just sort of practicality is, is almost most important, um, sort of um, either for its kind of personal ambition or, um, and yeah, we do see these alliances that kind of, yeah, go across kind of national or sort of ethnic um, divides. So it, it seems like Ethelred, um, the Enredi, before the Danish invasion, that that he, he makes alliances um, with some Scandinavian Vikings um, which you know presumably is just sort of motivated militarily that he thinks this is actually quite quite a good policy um or you know that you can try and get some of them on your side and you can sort of play one group of vikings kind of off against another um so so yeah we're definitely not kind of just seeing it as as really clear cut kind of english versus versus scandinavian or um versus danish um and Ethelred is also um seems to be dealing with um of disputes between different factions of nobles, kind of different parties, sort of at court, and are also making things a bit problematic. And it may even well be that his eldest sons are also kind of um, have, have kind of uh, had a dispute with him as well. So, so there's definitely kind of a lot of kind of complicated um, court politics going on that doesn't just seem to be about. Um, yeah, about about their origin. Ethelred had a, a tricky hand to play, certainly, didn't he? Oh, and we should just just be clear. So, Ethelred yes. <laughs> is the uh, the king of England before mm-hmm. Sven and Canute turn up in uh, in yes. the uh, early part of the 11th century, and uh, uh, as you said, uh, mm-hmm. has the unfortunate moniker of uh, of unready. Yes. But, um, but that um, mm-hmm. 
Mm. Yeah, so certainly he has quite a bad uh, a bad reputation, I guess, but particularly nowadays. Although obviously some we, we've maybe had some 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 more like revisionist ideas that um, that as you say he, he had a bad hand to play. It's not just that that it's not just his own personal failings necessarily that that, that lead to the um, lead to the Danish invasion. You know, he's having to deal with yeah large fleets and a sort of qu- quite a rate of attrition in a way of, of these kind of regular raids um, against the country. So he did have quite quite a, quite a tall order and obviously he'd been he'd had quite a long reign and been fairly successful before then but then yeah obviously in the end he loses it which i suppose is what what everyone remembers can we let, let's move it forward 50 years or so could, could you've mentioned harold hardrada mm-hmm. a couple of times um and he's he's a yeah. fascinating figure hardrada and in in the sort of the narrative of English history, you kind of if you if you know about the Norman mm. Conquest, you know as, as as you've mentioned that he turns up, uh, wins one battle, loses another, uh, and uh, mm-hmm. and and then sort of and, and dies, and 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 that's the end of the story. And kind of the, you know you hear mm. no more about him. He kind of appears suddenly on the stage and then disappears. Who, who was Hardrada, and why was he why was he such an important figure? <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um... Yeah, so so he's he's had quite a sort of unusual route route to kingship in a way. Um, in that um, he he spent a lot of time um, in Byzantium, um, in sort of Constantinople, um, in the kind of the potentially in the kind of the bodyguard um, of, of the emperor there, um, and sort of serving as a general. Um, and sort of having um, conflicts with kind of all sorts of peoples, with the Bulgars and, and people sort of um, to the east of Byzantium. Um, so, so in this period, we we talk about um, a, a sort of body called called the Varangian Guard um, as this sort of kind of elite personal bodyguard um, of the emperor. And it seems like they preferred um, kind of northern warriors, so particularly kind of Scandinavians. We do get some English um, English people in it as well. Um, so yeah, I guess he's kind of gone and had this sort of successful um, sort of military career kind of outside Scandinavia. Um, and then he kind of returns, um, presumably with kind of some supporters and some wealth that he's kind of gained um, while he was away that he can then kind of leverage um, when he gets back. Um, so he's the um, he's the half brother of a previous um, previous ruler. And I think he's actually the technical terms it is a uterine half-brother isn't it they shared the same the same mother rather than the same father um who is um saint olaf um who i guess sort of becomes seen as the kind of patron saint of norway um although it doesn't actually seem like he was very popular in norway at the time you know like they they kick him out once and he tries to come back again um and then the, the norwegians probably still don't really want him back so then he gets killed in battle um trying to restore the throne um but then the fact kind of that he is martyred in a sense um and that he becomes a saint um actually then seems to be quite useful in a way to his his sort of relatives and his descendants that they can kind of attach themselves um to this royal saint who's sort of seen as the kind of protector of all Norway. Um, so um, Olaf's son is ruling for a little while um, and then um, Harold kind of returns and then it seems like they kind of agree to share power for a bit. Um, not really sure how much how much choice the son had had in that or if that was just sort of the, the necessary um, decision to make. Um, but then, then he dies. So, um, so Harold kind of becomes becomes the sole king, um, and yeah, he's as I say, he's been sort of fairly successful um, 
within Scandinavia as well. Um, so he's often sort of having having conflicts with, with Denmark um, and even with Sweden as well. Um, but I think that the, according to the sagas, they sort of reach a truce, um, him and the Danish ruler um, in the sort of early 1060s. So that, that, again, might kind of make it a bit easier for him then to decide that he is going to try and get England. Um, I guess his claim on England is 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 a bit tenuous if we're thinking about kind of traditional ideas of, of inheritance or sort of primogeniture. Um, uh, so according to the sagas, the the one that he'd been sharing rule with, um, the son of, of Olaf, um, who's also called Magnus. So a lot of the Scandinavian kings in this period have, have the same name, which <laughs> can make things a little bit, un, um, a little bit tricky. Um, according to that, um, he had had an agreement um, with one of the sons of Canute, um, who we were both childless and they said well you know whichever one of us dies first the other one can succeed to their thrones um so that's sort of supposedly where he kind of gets his his claim on 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 England from um but I suppose in, in, in a lot of the medieval period your your claim to the throne I suppose might more just be based on on your um on your military ability and on your popularity rather than necessarily on actually who 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 was officially the successor. And as you say, Hardrada had quite a lot of military ability and, and prowess. And it, as I said, mm-hmm. so he, he loses um, at Stamford Bridge and, and from an English perspective, yeah. that's, you know, he loses to um, King Harold, uh, King Harold the Second of England. Mm-hmm. Um, and from an English perspective, that's that's the end of, of his story. Um, but it stands to reason that actually the, the, the demise of a significant military figure in Scandinavia would have an impact on what happens in Scandinavian politics, and I guess on your story of 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 the of the cross mm-hmm. um, cross Atlantic um, uh, travel uh, picture. So so it, it's quite significant, I suppose, mm. the the end of Hardrada. Yeah. So um, and it also seems like um, he brought one of his sons kind of with him when he's trying to do this invasion, who's kind of allowed to leave, and you know, a, a, a few kind of surviving kind of remnants of his army I guess are able to flee um from Stamford Bridge um and probably go back to Orkney where he seems like he's also left some of the rest of his family as this sort of slightly maybe slight place of safety relative to England um so so yeah his son also called Olaf unhelpfully um who becomes known as um Olaf Akiri so Olaf um the kind of the quiet or the sort of peaceful um so so he is quite a sort of successful reign of Norway in terms of um, kind of sort of political consolidation and these are sorts of like church patronage and maybe like found some some important towns um, even today. Um, but he, he seems to yeah, not not go for sort of big military expeditions. Um, so, you know, I mean, wh- whether we want to attribute to that to some kind of personal sense of, you know, he's seen his father be killed in battle um, or just that um, from a practical point of view, maybe maybe their military has been kind of significantly weakened. You know, you've lost a lot of your, um, lost a lot of your warriors, um, as you say, because there was the, the battle at Fulford as well before Stamford Bridge, even though that was initially successful um, for the Norwegians. Um, so maybe gives Denmark a bit more freedom of action um, at this point, as I say, when, when the Danes um, then, when they launched some expeditions um, against England in the sort of late 1060s and the 1070s. Um, so I say it's not until Harold's grandson, the Magnus Bearlegs, um, that I guess Norway sort of tries this big expedition um, to the West, although even then, I guess he's not 
he's not really trying for England um, as far as we can see. And certainly the sources do, um, the sort of the Scandinavian sources, which can maybe be a little bit more... Um, a little bit more colourful, a little bit more poetic in a sense. You know, they they make comparisons between him and his grandfather or maybe suggest that he's sort of um, somehow trying to, like, seek vengeance um, for his grandfather. Um, but as I say, because he's not actually really, really aiming for England, that, that I don't think that really, really was the case. But, um, yeah, perhaps he was sort of inspired by the kind of the vague... Um, sort of example of, of, of that of sort of winning fame and renown at least even um even if not the kingdom <laughs> okay fascinating stuff um let, let, let's wrap up just with a uh, a final question what, what's what's the bigger picture here what does this so you're describing a, a century basically of quite a lot of uh interest from uh from scandinavian rulers in uh what's happening in britain and ireland and, and the, the surrounding islands what does what does this all tell us about what's happening in the 11th century in terms of international re- relations uh, around the north atlantic i suppose one of the the sort of bigger picture things i wanted to get across was that um again we kind of have have this image of of the Vikings, I guess, as being sort of inherently kind of ruthless and sort of indiscriminately kind of violent, um, maybe a bit more influenced by by these sort of very early raids, um, you know, when um, when the sort of writers at, at the time who were sort of in monasteries being attacked and so on, kind of, you know, we obviously have these very vivid accounts of, of their kind of horror and shock at kind of what is happening. Um, but as I say, you know, this is now a, a couple of hundred years later, um, and yeah, the, the kings of Scandinavia probably are um, are a lot more powerful. Um, maybe do feel like they can kind of rival um, kings in in Britain and on the continent more. I suppose Canute, I suppose, being the most the most obvious example, you know, as someone who's able to rule England, Denmark, and sort of Norway um, in one period. But you know, he's he's also kind of going on pilgrimage to Rome, and he's. Um, sort of making alliances with the German emperor. Um, so he does seem to be, I guess, operating on quite an international level. So so I'd say we're, we're still quite far from this idea of, yeah, kind of sort of almost bloodthirsty barbarians in a way. Um, I'd say they're probably just, just as Christian as, as, as the English at this point. Um, so, yeah, and, and I suppose I was also think with, with these sort of push and pull factors that... Um, that maybe that they were still sort of making reasonably informed decisions or at least trying to, um, that, you know, yeah, there's still sort of practical things that, that might, um, might prevent them from, from launching an expedition, um, or kind of contribute to, to, to how, or how it's successful or not. Um, and I suppose, yeah, maybe in a sense, you can also see some of the same issues in Scandinavia, if we really reduce them to the basics in Scandinavia, um, and in Britain and Ireland as well, that if, um, you know, if I've been sort of talking about um, Scandinavian kings kind of needing the support um, of of their subjects and the sort of the nobility and then even people in their own family, um, you know, being worried about kind of uh, rebellion and so on, you know, we, I guess we do also have that for the English kings as well. Um, if we are seeing that as kind of potential weaknesses um, that the Scandinavians might be able to um, to exploit, um, such as the famous example is Eadrich Strayner, who's one of the kind of English nobles who just kind of switches sides but then he's also like takes takes a thing a fleet that you know they've been working really hard on the english to try and try and sort of counter this scandinavian naval prowess um they've been building ships and he just takes them all with him and kind of switches sides um 
Well, that doesn't work out very well for him in the long run, I guess, because Canute still has his head chopped off, presumably doesn't trust him very much. That was Caitlin Ellis. You can find plenty more on the Viking period on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.